Hey, Fidelity, can I get a second opinion on stocks in the Fidelity app? With Fidelity, it's easy to get an outside opinion from independent experts in a single score. And then? When you're ready, trade U.S. stocks and ETFs with no commissions. That's right. I am always right. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity account. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This is an NBC News special report. Here's Savannah Guthrie. Hi, everybody. Good morning. We're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just issued a pair of opinions in closely watched cases involving affirmative action in college admissions at the University of North Carolina, as well as Harvard University, and has struck down those policies as unconstitutional. I want to turn to Laura Jarrett, our senior legal correspondent. And Laura, you and I are both doing a a version of speed read here on a very complex pair of cases, but it does seem to me um, very clear clear that these affirmative action programs by these two universities have been struck down. Many people thought, Laura, the court would outright overrule prior decisions that allow for affirmative action in certain conditions. And it's unclear to me that this opinion goes that far. How do you see it? That's exactly right. We have a major decision here as it relates to race and education in this country. And as you said, for decades, the court has said that you can look at race as a limited plus factor, a tip, if you will, not any checking the box exercise. And here, in this case, a divided court has said the programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina are invalid. Now, those are important because those are ones that many schools base their programs on. And so the up shot here for schools as they try to sort their way through what is a deeply divided court, uh, an opinion uh, spanning over 200 pages here, is to try to sort through what exactly is left. Mm. It's clear that if a student feels that race has impacted their life in a deep and meaningful individualistic way, they could write an essay about that. And the court for a long time has said that schools can use diversity, the educational benefits of diversity, as a legitimate goal. And it does not appear, at least so far, that the court is taking that away. But to the extent that Harvard and the University of North Carolina and other schools have been going about it in a way that is not as narrowly tailored as this court believes that it should be, those programs will no longer be invalid. But I have to say, again, it's easy, complicated opinion. It's going to take a while, I think, for the colleges and universities around the country to figure out what exactly is left, if anything, of their programs and how exactly they're going to have to try to now sort through um, what they can do to comply with the law going forward. But what is clear here is that the headline is those colleges and universities programs are invalid. This is a sea change. This is the first time we have seen anything like this. Absolutely. I mean, it's a scathing opinion. I mean, it, it talks about Harvard and UNC admissions programs lacking sufficiently focused and measurable objectives, unavoidably employing race in a negative manner, involving racial, racial stereotyping, lacking a meaningful endpoint. So while we did not see that form of words, Laura, that this prior decision upholding affirmative action programs, Grutter v. Bollinger, we didn't say that is outright overruled. To your point, it, in what is left? So if, if these admissions programs, which were tailored to try to comply with Supreme Court precedents. If they don't pass muster, you are left to wonder what will. 
Exactly. Harvard was seen as the gold standard dating back to 1978. It was propped up as the program that actually got it right. The idea that it was taking the whole picture into account, that race, again, was just one factor in a larger, non-formulaic, holistic approach. That's what the schools always said. We're flexible. It's not a just check the box for one race and you get in. But again, it appears on this record that these conservative justices have disagreed with that. And, you know, many had wondered why they took this case in the first place, if they weren't going to sort of reevaluate the law. And it seems, though, that the, the predictions had been largely correct. And based off of oral argument, the justices seem very skeptical, in particular, the chief saying, where does it end? If Grutter, which came out in 2003, said in 25 years from now, you shouldn't have to be relying on race anymore. Well, we're almost at that 25 year mark. And it appears because the schools didn't have a time limit that they were willing to commit to that was really used as a knock against them. Absolutely. It does seem that really got in the craw of many of the justice during oral arguments when they asked these universities, okay, so when does it end? Even Grutter, this seminal Supreme Court case that upheld the use of race-conscious admissions under certain circumstances, imagined that it would end, even said, in 25 years, we shouldn't need this anymore. And when the universities were asked, okay, so how do you see this ending? The court was clearly not satisfied with the responses there. And that was one of the reasons why these two admissions programs failed in the court's views. They also, I read, just continue to read with you, Laura, here, it says, many universities have for too long wrongly concluded that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned. But but the color of their skin. This nation's constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. This is Chief Justice John Roberts writing the majority opinion six to three with Justices Sotomayor uh, Kagan and Judge Justice Jackson in dissent. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's interesting because you have to start from the backdrop that the conservatives on this court have made uh, sort of their feelings about what is more colloquially known as affirmative action for a long time. And the question was always, well, how far do they want to go? Do they want to say you can't use race at all, even in an essay? That would be somewhat extraordinary. And again, at oral argument, even Justice Jackson pointed out, well, how can you strip that away from somebody's identity? How can you tell them they can't even talk about it in an essay? And it appears the court is not going that far. And so now it seems the next step there where we're going here is where people will be trying to find other ways to incorporate how race is meaningful in their lives. But again, not in the way that schools are doing it currently. It's going to be a reworking of the current system. If you want to at least explain how race is important to you and the school wants to take that into effect as it tries to have a diverse campus uh, and, and promote that, that's not wrong. But it's the way that schools have been going about it that the justices believe violates the law. And let me turn, Laura, to Danny Savalas, also another lawyer with us who's been looking into this opinion. And, you know, you always ask uh, when you see an opinion like this, so not only what does this mean for the universities, but what does it mean for other segments of society who might use kind of race-conscious hiring decisions? So employment or even the military, which has long said that having a diverse officer corps is incredibly important to troop morale and the like. How do you see this, perhaps if not in a legally binding way, but in a practical way, affecting other aspects? aspects of our culture. 
Well, this is really fascinating because we're all digesting this 230 plus page opinion. And the majority doesn't appear to explicitly strike down Gruder. And Gruder was the case that for the first time recognized that diversity could be a compelling interest that could warrant the use of race conscious admissions policies in higher education as long as they were narrowly tailored. So the issues before the court were either could the court overrule Gruder or could they simply keep Gruder and decide whether or not the university's uh, policies were narrowly tailored. So what's interesting is the majority opinion doesn't appear to strike down Gruder, but two dissenting and concurring opinions by Justice Thomas and by Sotomayor essentially say, look, the majority opinion effectively overrules Gruder. And I think there's going to be a lot of looking closely at those dissenting and concurring opinions. And at oral argument, that issue of the military came up explicitly. It is this case will have implications for future cases that deal with this kind of uh, diversity at the military level and elsewhere. But really, the narrow issue here was diversity in higher education. And the justices recognize that places like the uh, Naval Academy and West Point are somewhat different. But for today, uh, it's not entirely clear whether Gruder is still good law. It appears appears to be officially good law. In other words, diversity may still be a compelling interest. But according to at least two justices concurring and dissenting, they think Gruder is no longer good law. Well, perhaps, yeah, all but in name overruled. I think that's the suggestion. We're hearing it from the, both a concurrence and a dissent. Danny, good point there. I want to turn to Guy Charles. He's a professor at Harvard Law School. He also directs the Charles Hamilton Institute for Race and Justice. He was not involved in, in Harvard's litigation of this case. But, Professor, and again, nobody can read. No, not even the best speed reader can read an opinion like this, 234 pages and digest it all. But what is your take based on what you've been able to see so far? You know, I think so far, all of your analyses are accurate. So what is happening here is the court doesn't seem, the majority opinion doesn't seem to be overturning Gruder, but seems to want to use uh, what at least at the time seemed like a throwaway line by Justice O'Connor, making an aspirational statement saying that this can't go on too far. And we expect in 20 to 25 years that it will be over. And so the court uses that as the hook in order to say that there is no limitation and that the Constitution requires an, an endpoint. So not only is there no endpoint, but there is also no transparency. Where It's not clear what the universities are doing. So they've severely limited and said you can't separate and use race as a basis for admissions, that it has to be individual decision making. So with respect to the essay, perhaps an individual can say how they overcame a particular racial discrimination or how race uh, enabled them to overcome something in their lives. But there can be no categorical decisions made on the basis of race. So severely mm. limiting what universities can do and essentially saying to the universities, look, we're going to keep an eye on you and we don't want you to use any method to circumvent the framework that we've articulated here in this opinion. But of course, it doesn't it doesn't end in litigation whatsoever, because now universities are left to sort of say, all right, now how can we, what what would fall within the court's reasoning here? What kinds of policies might pass muster? As opposed to if there had been a blanket overruling of the court's prior precedents, perhaps that would have been a, a more clear edict if it was just a simple, you can't consider it at all. But the court didn't do that either, Professor. Well, on, on the first read, again, one will have to read this very carefully in order to determine precisely what the court did. But on my first pass, um, it doesn't seem that the court has said 
an absolute blanket prohibition, but came pretty close to saying that, Mm -hmm. essentially leaving the door open by saying that, look, universities can use essays um, to address how a particular individual overcame uh, a distinctive racial barrier. Uh, But it came pretty, the court came pretty close uh, to saying it. And also, I I think also sent a message that it's going to keep its eye on um, admission, affirmative uh, uh, action practices or admissions practices um, to assure that there is no back door that is being used to sneak in racial considerations. So even though the uh, this is a typical Roberts opinion, where in many ways he doesn't effectively say outright what it is that he's doing, but I think upon a close reading, I think what we will find is that the 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 aperture is tiny at, at most. Yeah, no question. And, and just the tone of, of some of the writing here from the Chief Justice is clear there's contempt for these affirmative action programs. Uh, as I turn to Laura Jarrett, I'm uh, talking about um, where he, it, Justice Roberts says, the unclear connection between the goals that the universities seek and the means they employ are so vague, they're saying, that you can't even scrutinize them. And he says, the university's main response to these criticisms is trust us, which it seems the court is no longer willing to do, Laura. No, and it it hasn't been uh, for a while. And if you think about it, the entire backdrop of this is the Equal Protection Clause, which says any racial categorization is supposed to be suspect, right? No matter what it is, it's supposed to be suspect. It doesn't mean that some don't get through, but they're always supposed to be subject to what the court says is strict scrutiny, which means they have to actually have a good reason if you're going to categorize someone on the basis of their race. And here, again, the court is saying they simply went about it the wrong way. Yeah. Let me turn to our Washington correspondent, Hallie Jackson, who's with us as, now, uh, as well, getting some of this reaction. Yeah. And also, uh, you, you know, the, the public reaction and the public opinion on affirmative action. It's complicated, Savannah, when it gets to the public opinion piece of it. Um, and it depends kind of on what poll you look at, right? Because more than half of Americans um, think that affirmative action is necessary. About 40 percent say it goes too far, according to some of our NBC News polling. But if you look at breakdowns by race, according to Pew, more white and Asian Americans disapprove than Hispanic or black Americans. It, it is a bit of a complicated picture when it comes to race and education in this country. And you're starting to see that by some of the reaction here. And I would just note, too, some of the dissent in the Supreme Court opinion written by Justice Sotomayor, she writes that although progress has been slow and imperfect, race-conscious college admissions policies, in her view, has advanced the Constitution's guarantee of equality. She says that today this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. You are seeing that echoed already by, for example, the National Education Association saying that with this decision, the Supreme Court has reinforced barriers for black, brown, indigenous people all around the country of more inclusive schools. On the flip side of the coin, you're seeing reaction from some political candidates already, like former Vice President Mike Pence, who is applauding what the Supreme Court has done today and also taking some credit for helping to put on the court some of the justices on the more conservative end of the spectrum who were a part of this decision. He was obviously the vice president when Donald Trump was president and nominated and the Senate confirmed the justices Uh, three of the more conservative justices who are on the court today. Remember that already nine states in this country have currently done what it sounds like the court is moving to do, which is ban affirmative action for public schools. California and Michigan, in briefs filed with the court, 
pointed out that because of those policies, they saw the number of minority students. They saw less diversity in their schools in the years after those bans were passed. You had other schools like, for example, Oklahoma and several others saying, well, we didn't actually see a difference when we outlawed affirmative action. But you were seeing and I spoke with some some folks this morning with the NAACP who said there is going to be a real uh, concern about diversity in classes if the Supreme Court takes this step, which it appears that they've done, Savannah. All right, Hallie, thank you. And as you go through this rather thick opinion, which I have right here, just so people know what we're talking about, the fine print is right here. And many of the justices, even who are in agreement with the majority decision and the outcome here, have written concurring decisions. So perhaps highlighting other reasoning, something more for lawyers and indeed these universities and perhaps employers as well to pour over in the coming years. Let's go to our chief White House correspondent, Kristen Welker. And of course, the White House would also be watching this quite carefully. What do you hear, Kristen? Savannah, I'm told they're reviewing this decision right now. I wouldn't be surprised if we heard from President Biden about this. He's heading to New York a little bit later on today for a pair of fundraisers. But look, uh, the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, has been asked about this. She has stressed the fact that equity and equality is a key priority for President Biden, noting that he signed an executive order stressing the need for diversity in the agencies here. I spoke with a source familiar with the administration's thinking in the run-up to this decision. Let me read you what that source had to say, sort of a pre-reaction, if you will, to these events, Savannah. This person saying, quote, President Biden supports making an education beyond high school accessible to all Americans. As the Biden-Harris administration has reiterated in its brief in support of the universities, the federal government has an interest in ensuring that our colleges and universities produce graduates who come from all segments of society and who are prepared to succeed and lead in an increasingly diverse nation. The Supreme Court reaffirmed this not long ago in Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin in 2016. And as the administration argued during oral arguments, the court should do so again. A little bit of a preview of what we can expect to hear in any written uh, or verbal remarks that we might get from President Biden. For President Biden, this is really a political matter as well, not just a policy matter. Savannah, we've seen that. In the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, he, the vice president, have tried to cast this court as a so-called extremist court. I'm quoting here. So taking the opposite tact of, for example, former Vice President Mike Pence, who's touting the fact that they put some of these conservative justices on the court to make these decisions possible. We are hearing from the NAACP. I know we we're just talking about that with Hallie, who says, quote, Today, the Supreme Court has bowed to the personally held beliefs of an extremist minority. We will not allow hate-inspired people in power to turn black the clock and undermine our hard-won victory. So again, we are getting a little bit of a preview of what I think we can expect to hear from President Biden. Again, he's been ramping up his 2024 re-election campaign. He's going to some fundraisers later today. Undoubtedly, reporters are going to ask him about this, get his reaction, and I anticipate he will make this a cornerstone of his campaign message. All Savannah. right, Kristen, thank you very much. I'm going to turn now to Lonnie Chen, a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Uh, I wonder what you make of this decision. Do you feel, as many of our analysts who are just starting to digest this opinion, that in some sense, the, these earlier precedents allowing some race-based admissions policies, that it's all been but been overruled? Yeah, I, I think that they've tried to uh, to walk a fine line here. On the one on the one hand, you have you know in previous decisions, and, and your previous guests may have talked a little bit about this 25 year mark and and the fact that we aren't quite there. 
but using that general timing as a way of walking this line between saying, uh, you know, we aren't trying to throw the whole thing out. We're not saying, for example, that individuals can't refer to their own race, but at the same time saying and making very, very clear, and this is not surprising that we would see this from this court, uh, the point of view that, uh, that, that race should not be used in this way in admissions, whether with respect to private universities like Harvard or public universities like the University of North Carolina. And do you, um, it's interesting to me because one of our previous guests, a Harvard professor, had said, you know, that Sandra Day O'Connor line in that original Grutter case where, you know, it's got to end at some point, maybe in 25 years. He said that was almost a throwaway line. Now the court is, is reading it as a requirement of that precedent, that it's got to end at some point and that these policies fail because these universities could not put a timeline on it. They couldn't say when, if ever, their goal of diversity would be achieved. Well, not, not only with respect to the timeline, I think the other issue is that the, the universities, I think the decision makes clear, were unable to articulate the, the way in which race could be used in a manner that would not run afoul of, uh, of either a legal precedent or constitutional requirement. And so, it, it yes, I think it's interesting how that 25-year uh, marker has gone from being uh, almost a piece of dicta, almost a piece of sort of, you know, hey, this is just sort of out there, to being one of the core considerations uh, in this particular set of decisions. But what will be interesting will be the ways in which, uh, and you've noted this, universities and businesses uh, who may have known this was coming now really have to deal with the unwinding of racial preferencing, whether in admissions or to a certain respect in hiring. Uh, and, and even though that application is more limited, the implications are indeed quite far reaching. Indeed. And let's talk about those with Danielle Holly, the dean of Howard University's law school, a school that will have to grapple with this decision. Uh, what are your thoughts as we are just starting to digest this opinion? You know, I think it is going to be a very tough opinion to navigate for colleges and universities. Um, as of July 1st, I become the president of Mount Holyoke College. And at Mount Holyoke, we value tremendously everything about our applicants and students who attend our college and to be able to consider the whole student. While the opinion does say that applicants may write about race if it's tied to individual character, I think the issue is how do schools navigate what is the chief justice's advice? And I think it's going to be very difficult to do that while trying to pursue the incredibly important goal of reaping the educational benefits of diversity. Well, and, you know, we have some real world examples of this. For example, California, the state schools banned affirmative action. And some of those uh, administrators have said it's been hard for them to maintain the kind of diversity that they had hoped to maintain in the absence of those policies. How do you see this playing out? Absolutely. I think that's a great point. We have some laboratories for this decision, places like California and Michigan. And what we've seen is that many colleges and universities in California and Michigan and other states have tried race neutral alternatives to affirmative action, and they've struggled tremendously to enroll black and Latino Latina students. So there is no doubt that this opinion will uh, make our colleges and universities less diverse unless we are willing 
to take on some of the tougher questions like legacy admissions, the use over dependence and use of standardized testing, et cetera. I mean, that'll be, that's where the policy discussion certainly goes from here. Um, let, let me turn back to Laura, Jared, stick with us if you would, uh, to all of our panelists as we discuss this. But it is interesting because some of the oral arguments centered on the issue that our professor, our university president just raised, which has to do with some of the other policies that have long and traditionally favored white applicants, such as parents who can donate, parents who went to that school, um, some of the particular t- sports that some people participate in, and how this decision as a practical matter lines up with those policies. Yeah, and it's certainly something that Justice Gorsuch was very focused on in oral argument, essentially saying, if diversity is truly your genuine goal, Harvard, then why don't you get rid of legacy? Why don't you get rid of all standardized testing, any uh, dependence on those? If you want to strip away all those and then come to us and say, we still can't uh, achieve the racial makeup that we want. That would be one thing, but you haven't even tried. And what it suggests is that you didn't try, again, what they call race-neutral alternatives. And because you didn't try that, they sort of view the entire project as suspect. But as we're sort of sorting through this, I think it is worth pointing out what the Chief Justice is saying is allowed, because I think these particular passages are now going to be dissected at length. He says, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. And so I think, again, this is where sort of the meat is now going to be, and perhaps additional litigation is going to result from that particular passage. It's interesting because it underscores what I think we've all noted here is this case will not stand for an outright ban of any explicit mention of race in an applicant's uh, admission to a university, but it has been severely limited in terms of what the universities themselves can do in terms of race as they seek to get a a composition of a student body that they consider to be racially diverse. I want to turn to Jennifer Mascott. She's a a former law clerk for Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, so certainly knows the inner workings. So when you look at an opinion like this, you see all these concurrences, these dissents, you know that they've grappled with key precedent of the court. What are what are your thoughts about it? Well, thanks so much. Yes. I mean, I think today, obviously, six justices of the court have said that under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, that admissions programs cannot discriminate, cannot make admissions decisions squarely on the basis of race. As others have mentioned, the court is saying that if race has impacted your life and it's had a connection with some kind of character or quality or aspect of your background, that like any other part of your past, obviously, um, in an admissions decision can look at it, can consider it. But strategic Basically, one thing I find very interesting about this big blockbuster con law decision of the year is that uh, there are some interesting contrasts to the Dobbs decision last year that overruled Roe versus Wade. Here, there was actually a statutory basis on which the court could have found the university programs unlawful, and instead it decided to squarely take on the constitutional question. Also, in contrast to the Dobbs decision, obviously, as we know, written by Justice Alito, here the Chief Justice is writing, Harvard and UNC decisions are decided together, so the court did 
did not decide to make narrow distinctions based on differences in those two programs, but just say that in general, this overbroad categorical approach is inconsistent with the Equal Protection Clause. But in an interesting way, they they do not here overrule past precedent in contrast to Dobbs. Maybe that's why the Chief Justice here joined uh, and wrote the majority opinion here with has six justices joining it in full, uh, because the court is saying even under its past precedent, um, under the strict scrutiny standard, which is the toughest standard on which to find something um, unconstitutional, the programs here do not um, do not measure up. Do you look at this and you, again, know the, for lack of a better phrase, of politics of the court and the way that some of the wrangling goes on behind closed doors about opinions, who's going to write the opinion, what the justices are willing to sign on to? Do you feel that had it been, let's say, an Alito who had written that opinion or a Justice Thomas, that you would have had an overt, we have overruled Grutter? Or, and, and do you consider Chief Justice's decision to be something of a compromise position? Well, it's hard to tell, as you say, obviously, because uh, you don't know the inner workings entirely. It certainly seems as though five justices of the court last year in Dobbs found uh, explicitly overruling Roe and Casey past precedent to be important enough that they were willing to move ahead and have that decision. And whatever the chief justice thought in contrast with maintaining consistency with past precedent was not enough to peel away votes and take the majority uh, reasoning in that case. In contrast here, I think probably um, the justices, I would imagine, Thought, thought that this opinion was strong and clear enough and 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 uh, strong enough on the broad brushstrokes of affirmative action and saying race can't categorically be considered just as its own independent factor, that everybody felt this was something they could join. It's interesting, Justice Thomas, though, here does write separately, as he often does to explain how this decision's not just consistent or not with precedent, but it's consistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, um, how folks at the time would have thought this amendment would have been carried out. And then Justice Kavanaugh writes separately to explain how this opinion is consistent with past precedent. So perhaps uh, behind the scenes, his vote was also um, thoughtfully considering here how the ruling today was going to be consistent with what the court's done in the past. Jennifer Mascott, we're talking about your two former bosses, having clerked for Justice Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh. Great to have your perspective and we'll continue to check in with you. But for the moment, I want to go to NBC's Antonia Hilton, who's on the campus of Harvard University. And Antonia, I, I imagine students are just getting this news as we are. But have you heard any reaction so far? Well, Savannah, people woke up this morning and were ready for this. Students knew this was coming. In fact, they've been preparing for this moment for years. They knew from the earliest stages of this lawsuit that it was going to wind its way up to the Supreme Court and that very likely this was going to be the result. It still feels like a gut punch. That's the kind of language I'm hearing from students that I've been talking to this morning, that they're devastated, they're distressed, uh, not really for themselves, but more for the generations of students uh, coming up behind them. For many of the minority students, not just black students, but for Latino students, uh, Native American students, Native Hawaiian students who come from communities that have historically been very underrepresented at Harvard and schools like Harvard, they're particularly worried about kids like them trying to get access to these schools in the future. And they often point to California as an example that's fueling those anxieties. And that's because more than two decades ago, what we saw happen in California's UC system is that when they did away with affirmative action, 
minority enrollment in their elite public universities there fell by about 50 percent. Those were very devastating numbers for the minorities on campus there, for professors uh, who were teaching courses and trying to support those students uh, who continued to study the ramifications of all that. And the university system there has tried different alternatives. They've tried to recruit students of color from different communities across California, uh, create programs and pipelines. But what they found is that they could never quite bring themselves back up to the level of diversity that they would like to see. And that's what they're concerned is going to happen here on this campus already this spring. So really just a couple weeks ago when students around the country, around the world, found out their acceptances to Harvard, we already saw those numbers tick down a bit. So the numbers of black students admitted, uh, Latino students, Native Hawaiian and Native American students went down by just a bit. And so there's concerns, concern here that that's only going to get worse now. For faculty, for administrators, they have also been planning sort of behind closed doors for this moment. Mm. And they're looking at alternatives. It's part of the reason why we see a lot of schools moving away right now from the SAT and ACT, from standardized tests. They believe that that's part of what has limited minority access, and perhaps removing that will be a roadblock that allows them to continue fostering diversity. There are a lot of conversations about legacy admissions and the way that potentially limiting that or doing away with it would allow them to make more uh, space for diverse uh, students. But the concern, again, is, you know, how do you pick up the pieces? How do you look for different opportunities and windows that are going to be legal through this opinion? And I think that's going to take days, uh, really months, for these schools to process. And certainly the vast majority of students are just worried that Harvard is going to look a bit more like it did many decades ago when the school was much more explicitly uh, barring access, not just to minorities, but also to women. And so, you know, there's nerves right now about the campus that those students, those kids, have come to love uh, and celebrate, a school that has been very very open about the fact that it cherishes diversity, it cherishes that kind of learning and that kind of access, uh, and and what they're going to do to maintain that culture going forward. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of a kind of a grieving right now, and, and what are we going to do now is the major question. It's a complicated question, no question about it. Antonia Hilton, thank you so much. I've, the First Circuit, which had looked at this Harvard case, uh, found that it also resulted in fewer admissions of Asian American students, and the court in its decision today says college admissions are zero sum and a benefit provided to some applicants, but not to others, necessarily advantages the former at the expense of the latter. And as I turn to former federal prosecutor, NBC legal analyst Carol Lamb, it, it seems that what the court is saying is we need to get out of this business of judging students based on race and try to get back to a more merit-based system. Uh, obviously a question that one can debate, but that seems to be the clear thrust of this opinion. Yeah, there's no question that the court is. It just it flat out says it finds it finds race for race uh, race purposes alone just to be uh, not a an acceptable method of choosing your students under the Constitution. But I think what's important to point out here, and I think admissions directors across the country would say, you know, that it's important to recognize that it. The point of admission is only one point in a whole cycle of efforts that universities make to bring a diverse student body to their class. And um, what that means is recruitment and financial aid are, and support after a person is admitted to the class are also very important steps in ensuring that students have access and that students benefit from a diverse student population. So it's very important that colleges and universities going forward really study this opinion and really take the advice of their counselors with respect to what this opinion says so that they are not 
they're not stepping away from recruitment and financial aid efforts where they don't have to, that, that they don't, there isn't a chilling effect that, or a pall that's put on those kinds of programs, which are so important to ensuring that a diverse student body does come to the university. All right, Carol, stand by there. I want to turn back to Kristen Walker at the White House. And uh, Kristen, you've got new reaction coming in. Savannah, I've got new reaction from former President Trump from his campaign. A spokesperson writing, quote, President Donald Trump made today's historic decision to end the racist college admissions process possible because he delivered on his promise to appoint constitutionalist justices. America is a better nation as a result of the historic rulings led by Donald Trump's three Supreme Court nominees underscoring that this is the type of language, Savannah, that again, we heard from his former vice president, Mike Pence, as a political matter in a primary election season. What you're seeing is a lot of the Republican candidates really praising this decision. We are still waiting for reaction from the White House. They are still reviewing this for that very reason that you say, Savannah, because this is a very complicated ruling. They want to make sure that their reaction, I am told, is accurate to what is actually in the pages of this decision. But again, as a political matter, the tone that we have seen from this president, who has already out, been out on the campaign trail, ramping up his reelection campaign, has been one of campaigning against some of what this court has done so far. And so the question becomes, how will that, how will this decision fit into that broader narrative that we've seen from President Biden? Of course, in a general election, the vote of voters of color is going to be critical for whoever wins the White House. And so the language around this ruling, Savannah, I think is going to be a key feature. Well, we've seen certainly how a Supreme Court decision can uh, factor greatly into the elections that then follow it. We saw it with the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. But when you look at public opinion for affirmative action, where is the public on that? Is it a clear cut uh, case for either side here? Um, who will receive if a, a political benefit, if any, by a decision like this? Well, if you put up some of the latest polling that we have, Savannah, it is quite split. Now, in some cases, polling and support for affirmative action goes as high as 63 percent. Um, but in other polls, it's more narrowly divided. And so I think even that becomes a very complicated question. And it's how the polling is worded. Are you talking about affirmative action? Are you talking about preferences for voters uh, of color? And so I think that that is how, uh, you know, this becomes a very gray area. But again, Savannah, I think as a political matter, I think you're going to see this fit. And there you see that polling 53 percent say that we still need quotas. Forty two percent say it goes too far. So you still see there a majority of voters saying, yes, we think affirmative action is a good thing. You see that with Roe v. Wade as well, by the way, Savannah. And that is why I think this president has leaned so heavily into campaigning against the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. So again, the administration reviewing this decision, Savannah. All right, let's turn back to Laura Jarrett. It's interesting as we read through the opinion, Laura, there are also areas that it seems the chief justice wanted to exempt from this opinion. One of them, one of them we, we talked about earlier, which is, had come up in oral arguments quite a bit, which is the military. Whether this decision in any way affects the military, and there's a footnote in, in Robert's opinion, he says um, there's that no military academy is a part 
party to these cases. None of the courts below address the propriety of race-based admission systems in that context. It does not address the issue in light of the potentially distinct interests that military academies may present. Can you flesh that out for us, why he would have taken pains to make this point? Yeah, he realizes he may be opening a can of worms uh, if he was to go that far. Certainly, the military filed a friend of the court brief saying, look, diversity is important to us. It's important in terms of how we keep our troops safe, um, in terms of leadership. Uh, and so it appears, again, that he was trying to cabinet in a certain respect. But again, the question is, is that a meaningful difference that's going to be able to be effectuated in a practical sense now on the ground? Or is it just going to lead to further litigation? And to pick up on Kristen's Point. You know, it does strike me what's different about a, a opinion that is as divided uh, and as significant as this is that it's not an on or off switch, right? When the when the court took the enormous step of overturning Roe versus Wade, uh, it really was a, a meaningful sort of uh, light bulb, if you will, that the court had had done something it had never done before. It would be a new day. This is going to take a while, I think, to really see the full effects of it, in particular because of the way that the majority of the court has gone after the programs at Harvard uh, and UNC in such a direct way, saying that they engaged in stereotyping. Remember, the allegation here was that the schools had actively discriminated against Asian American applicants uh, in a way that uh, it was quite stark and also favored black and Latino students. And it may not be the case that every school uh, on you know the same type of record uh, could be found at doing that, but they at least believe that Harvard and UNC did. And, and also, Savannah, this point about a meaningful time limit, the, the court seems very consumed by the idea that the schools simply were not willing to commit to an expiration date on the use of race. And they're, they're really honing in on, on that in particular. Again, maybe a different case would have a different outcome uh, if schools had tried to limit it in some way. But on this record, the case has not. It will be interesting to see how college admissions programs try to divine what is in this opinion, see if they try to keep any aspect of race conscious admissions and make them comply with this decision or just throw it out entirely and, and try to achieve diversity in another way. I want to turn to Danielle Hawley. She's dean of the Howard University School of Law uh, for the moment. I think you said you're going to Holyoke University soon, but in any event, you'll be involved in admissions. And uh, I mean, what's your take on that question? W would you try to persist in, in having race be a factor in admissions if you could comply with the, the letter of this decision today? Or do you feel like this will be so intimidating that you'll have to go in a different direction altogether to achieve diversity? You know, what we know is that racial and ethnic diversity is an incredibly important part of what we do. And I think colleges and universities all over the country who value racial and ethnic diversity will, first of all, make that a statement. This is an important priority for us. We've seen colleges and universities already coming out and saying that. And I think considering race is a very broad spectrum and includes things like completely holistic review, allowing students to talk to us about who they are and the life circumstances that they've had up to this point. And so by the Supreme Court not completely overruling Grutter, what it does is it gives colleges and universities an opportunity to study this opinion, to follow the law, but to also continue to pursue the very important goal of the educational benefits of diversity. I would say I think one of the strongest opinions today was Justice Jackson in dissent in the UNC case, in which she says the majority has a let them eat cake obliviousness because declaring 
hearing from the bench that colorblindness is everything doesn't mean that race doesn't matter in real life. And I think what most colleges and university admissions officers know is that race makes a big difference in the lives of students and how they come to the point of their application. And we want to be able to consider students on a realistic basis, considering their real life experiences. Thank you so much. I want to turn now to Guy Charles, who is a professor of law at Harvard Law School, should mention not again involved in the litigation of this case. But, you know, taking a step back here and to pick up on where the conversation was headed, it really these are these big moments in our history where we're kind of grappling with what does the decision Brown versus Board of Education, which outlawed segregation in schools, what does that mean? What's the real legacy of it? And when you when you go back that far and then you go to the the Bakke case in 1973, eight, I think, that allowed the first race-conscious admissions. Where do you see that on the spectrum? Look, uh, you're right at the beginning to say that this is a watershed moment. We have the most diverse country that we've ever had. We have a legacy of slavery, of subordination, of discrimination, and we're trying to figure out how to deal with that. The thing about this case and the reason why it's a watershed, it's because it takes one tool off the table effectively, and it sends a very strong message to the rest of our society. It limits how we can think about and address the problem and the history of racial discrimination. It limits how we can address the problem of underfunding of schools and education. It limits how we can address the problem that racial minorities and people of color um, sometimes uh, get the short end of the stick. Uh, so it is a momentous uh, decision. It is like one of the past decisions that, we, that you have talked about. Uh, it interprets both the Constitution and an important federal statute, Title, title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which its purpose was to try to reset and to provide equality in a country that did not know it. Right. So this is an important moment for the country and for all of us to grapple with where do we go from here? How do we think about the question of racial equality? How do we assure that everyone has the same set of life chances? And that's a difficult question, but that's a question that we have to grapple with. No question about that. Uh, Professor, thank you so much. I want to turn to NBC legal analyst Danny Savalos. I mean, the thing about these programs is that there are winners and there are losers. And it seems like the court is saying, we just want to get out of this business, this race business altogether. But of course, that raises the practical question of whether you're, you're ever out of that business in terms of the admissions test that people are are required to take and some schools are saying, okay, maybe we'll put those aside. About some of the policies where students of alumni get a leg up or students whose parents donate get a leg up. So you see a decision that's grappling with this, the fact that you do have winners and losers, the Asian Americans who said, hey, we were discriminated against by these policies and the court agreeing with them today. And then on the other side, you have people who say, look, this history of our country has subordinated African Americans and other minority groups, and we have to rectify those wrongs. And here the court is once again stepping into these incredibly complicated uh, legal waters. It's interesting, too, because remedying past discrimination is no longer a reason for uh, race-conscious admissions policies. It hasn't been since Grutter. Grutter narrowed the issue to only diversity, diversity being a compelling interest, and that was back in 2003, that would warrant race-conscious race admissions. And in a sense, the court has been whittling away at its own case law, Grutter, 
ever since that case was decided. I mean, essentially, uh, with each successive case, the court said, well, uh, you can consider race, but this university is considering it too much. And then this university is still considering it too much. And now you got to an argument where the universities were essentially arguing uh, just justices. We barely use race in our admissions process, but it's still really, really, really important. So in a sense, uh, Grutter, Baki, uh, they have been on the ropes for a long time. They actually appear to be still good law. It's just that the court has decided that these particular universities, their admissions policies uh, violate the uh, or fail to satisfy strict scrutiny. In other mm. words, they are not narrowly tailored enough to achieve this compelling interest. But it appears that diversity is still a compelling interest. And I should add also that it is not diversity, uh, racial diversity that Grutter authorizes. It's overall diversity. It's never been just racial diversity, which makes this more complicated. If universities Absolutely. want to achieve general diversity on campuses, overall diversity, uh, can they use race conscious decisions to achieve that overall diversity? And then another question that no one seemed to ever satisfactorily answer on either side is when does it end? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you heard in oral arguments some of the justices openly scornful of this idea of diversity. I think it was Justice Thomas uh, who said, I don't, I'm not sure I even know what that means, what this, what this phrase means. Um, let me turn to Laura Jarrett as we start to close our coverage here. I mean, following up on what Danny just said, I mean, if it's a kind of an erosion over time um, of some of these policies and these precedents, if not an outright overruling of them, is it death by a thousand cuts? I, I certainly think that's what the dissent feels like by Justice Sotomayor, Justice Jackson, Justice Kagan. Uh, certainly sort of you hear that type of argument being made. And that's why it'll be so interesting to see what exactly the court does tomorrow. It's final day of this momentous term as it still faces some very significant decisions left. Savannah, we have the fate of the president's student loan forgiveness program, uh, his plan to wipe out about $400 million of student loans uh, for borrowers across the country. We'll see what the court does there. It'll be interesting to see. You have six red states that have sued trying to keep that program on hold. It's been blocked in the courts for a while now. The Supreme Court will have the final say on whether, in fact, that program uh, is legal and can go through, whether he had the authority to do something that bold. And then we also have an interesting case. It's really a sequel of what happened five years ago. It's about a wedding website designer who hasn't made a single website yet, but she wants to only make them for straight couples. She doesn't want to make websites for gay couples. And the question there is, she can she do that under a state law that says if you have a public accommodation, you have to be open to all. So we'll wait to see what happens there tomorrow. The key First Amendment case. So once again, Again, the court waiting till the very closing days of its term to issue some landmark rulings. And we got a watershed today in terms of affirmative action. We'll continue to digest the story. Laura, thank you to you. Thank you to all of our correspondents and guests today. We'll have much more over on our streaming channel, NBC News Now, tonight on Nightly News. I'm Savannah Guthrie. This has been an NBC News special report. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill? 
for me. That's right. The Little Pink Pill. And it's called Addy. A-D-D-Y-I. Or Flavanserin. Learn more about The Little Pink Pill at A-D-D-Y-I.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at Addy.com slash P-I. Or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved Little Pink Pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I dot com.